and this is Anatomy of Change, a podcast series about the struggle and connection in making courageous change in the systems and structures that thread our lives. On this two-part season finale of Anatomy of Change, It all started uh, because I felt called to be a Catholic priest when I was 14 years old. A risk taker and woman of courage, Jamie Manson. She is best known for her writing for the National Catholic Reporter, where in her very first article, she came out as a lesbian. She is a Yale Divinity School theologian, award-winning writer and book editor, and Catholic. She is an activist on issues related to women and LGBTQ, young adults, and the future of the church, and president of Catholics for Choice. I come from an Italian-American family from New York. Um, we were not big churchgoers. Uh, my grandparents were very religious, but it was very much their own in-home practice of their version of Catholicism. I grew up surrounded by the stuff of Catholicism without really going to church. But when I was 12, my mother put me in Catholic school, and um, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with church. I loved Mass. I loved it. I did uh, Eucharistic adoration. I mean, just hardcore. Um, And I was at my first uh, Holy Thursday liturgy of my life, and that is the celebration of the priesthood of all believers. Um, And it's a very dramatic night. There is a couple of things happen that night that are very unusual, that don't happen throughout the church year. Uh, One of them is a foot washing. And the other is this very dramatic moment at the conclusion when the altar is stripped and every fragment of the Eucharist that's left over Uh, which would normally um, be left inside, on reserve, inside the church, is removed from the building. So as I like to say, Jesus literally leaves the building. And uh, there's this great procession, that removal of the Eucharist. And it was during that procession, there was incense and chanting. And I felt, I had a tremendous feeling of fear and irresistibility. And um, just, I was just so compelled by that Eucharist that the priest was carrying around out of the church. And it took me a while to figure out what was happening, but I I believe God was calling me to dedicate my life to the Eucharist. And I discerned that I was meant to be a Catholic priest. And of course, um, Catholic Church does not ordain women. But I pursued and pursued. I talked to my Catholic school teachers. They were very, very progressive. Um, They were sort of products of Vatican II. So they were like, yeah, you know, keep fighting. Um, But of course, when I would talk to priests, they would be like, yeah, no, can't help you. Sorry. It's just been a life of persistence, really, um, against the church. And in time, you know, I studied theology in, in high school. It was my major in college. And then I went to Yale Divinity School. Uh, And that's where I studied Catholic theology and sexual ethics. Uh, And it was there that I thought I would leave the Catholic Church and become an Episcopal priest because it looks the same, it smells the same, it sounds the same. 
Um, but I ended up having this very, very deep discernment um, about why it was I still called myself Catholic and um, what was it in the tradition that was worth fighting for. And I decided to keep staying in and struggling. And I, I did a lot of ministry. I, I worked in a Catholic parish as an out lesbian, believe it or not. There was one Catholic parish in the country that would hire an out lesbian mm. feminist. And I worked for years with the homeless and with the poor. Um, mm. And then I started writing for the National Catholic Reporter. And it was this really, you know, unusual position because I came out as a lesbian in my first column in 2008. It was a very different society and a very different church for queer people at that time, much less hospitable than it is now, I would say. And I had this remarkable platform that no, very few women get a column in, in the Catholic media, little and, and no queer woman, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> no out queer person. I was the first out queer person in the Catholic media in the wow. world. I'm still the only out queer woman. No one, no woman has come out as of yet. Catholic woman, that is specifically. Mm -hmm. So I had this platform and people loved my writing. And I was like, I've got to keep pushing because this is the last time for a long time a queer woman is going to have uh, a platform in, a, in the Catholic <laughs> media so let's use it and it was hard yeah. and it was lonely but just I felt such a sense of obligation to use that platform and so much of my writing for 12 years uh, was about women's ordination women's equality and reproductive rights because those were the things that they were willing to publish uh, in the National Catholic Reporter because I always did it from a place of faith and a place of claiming my Catholic identity um, and I think what people appreciated was that I lived in that, that liminal space, uh, you know, in that tension of seeing something really good and beautiful and true about the tradition, but also something very menacing about the hierarchy and, and, and the institutional church, particularly what it does to the bodies of, of women and queer people uh, and the control it has over us. When the job came up for president of Catholics for Choice, it just seemed like it was meant to be. And here I am. That's the journey. Issues that you've been raising over this time, and you think about the stories that I shared briefly with yeah. you, what are the common themes? What are those thread lines? You know, what has really been coming across for me is I do not trust the bishop's motives, the Catholic clergy's motives when it comes to abortion. I do not believe that protecting babies or protecting the unborn is their first priority in this. And what really drew that into relief for me was the way that they tacitly endorsed Donald Trump, very actively uh, endorsed Donald Trump. And in fact, you know, the, the, the most outspoken anti-choice Catholic voice in the country, Father Frank Pavone, doesn't go anywhere without his MAGA hat to this day. So the way in which they align themselves with Trump, particularly at the, at the March for Life in 2020, mm -hmm. really, to me, showed the, their true colors. That was a theme that Father Thomas spoke about. And we challenged each other because it was the idea that a Catholic cannot vote for anyone that espouses abortion. Mm -hmm. So regardless of other injustices or social issues, that is the compelling singular issue. Right. And so regardless of the person being authentic behind that statement, 
That was a bit scary for me. Well, I'll make it scarier for you. This is the position of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, is that it is the preeminent issue, always. Uh, they said that as recently as last year. Um, so he's parroting, or maybe he believes it, but he is parroting um, what the bishops believe, uh, that it is the issue uh, and the one that we must care uh, about to the exclusion of others. And that's what makes me question <laughs> their motives. Um, because we'll bring it into the, the, the current situation. Biden, um, when Biden got elected, the bishops formed a committee on what to do about his position on abortion. Mm. They never formed a committee on anything Donald Trump did. And you may remember Trump's last month, he was just on a killing spree with executions. Uh, the way he treated, you know, the people on the margins at our borders. There are so many examples of his utter disregard for life, his disregard for the planet, his disregard for the environment. Uh, just a, a, a really comprehensive disregard for life. And they never felt the need to write a letter of concern to him the way they did on mm -hmm. Biden's inauguration day. They certainly never formed a committee to discuss how problematic he was. So what's the issue, right? Why, is, why do mm -hmm. they fetishize abortion in that issue? To me, uh, it's because, you know, the Catholic Church is the last radical patriarchy and the most radical patriarchy in the world. Its leadership is comprised only of men, and not only men, but men who have vowed to not have women in their lives at any level. No wives, no daughters, nothing. They are truly out of touch with women at every level. But one of the hallmarks of patriarchy is the desire to control women's bodies and women's fertility specifically. So there's something about abortion that's clearly for them, you know, a, a drive to control women's fertility. And remember, the Catholic Church is also fundamentally opposes contraception. But what do they focus on? They focus on the pill, right? IUDs. When was the last time you heard a priest uh, condemn vasectomies? When was the last time you saw them put a rider in an insurance policy that blocked payment for any kind of erectile dysfunction pill, right? Why? Why, why does men's sexuality get completely carte blanche and not challenged, but there's an absolute fixation on women's fertility? This could be the only issue. It's that desire to control women's bodies and women's fertility that is very tied into the need to control women's freedom and women's power. Mm -hmm. It's something they do radically inside their walls. Remember, women cannot be priests. Women have mm -hmm. no decision-making power. Women have no voice in the development of doctrine. It, this is a, this is a 2000-year tradition completely void of women's influence. Um, the idea of women having power scares them terrifies them. Mm -hmm. I think that this position on abortion has everything to do with that and very little to do about babies. Anti-choice Catholics today like to say that the church's teaching on abortion is unchanged and unchangeable, and that's simply a lie. 
Uh, the position has changed quite a bit over the centuries. And a lot of it focuses on the fact that this, this question of insolment. Um, and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, who were the two fundamental doctors of the church, both made distinctions between early and late-term abortion. They thought insolment happened later in the pregnancy, 40 days, mm -hmm. 90 days. So the church's position has been complex uh, and has developed over time. And generally, whenever the church took a hard line on abortion, it was because of something else going on in society. You know, a rise in prostitution, uh, a declining birth rate. So much of it had to do with those societal factors, you know, how the church's position would change. So I think it's really important to, to note that, that a lot of theologians disagreed over time about when insolment happens and doesn't happen. The church still has not taken a formal position on that. What they say now is that life begins at conception. Well, mm -hmm. scientifically, that's actually false. Scientists suggest that as many as 80% of fertilized eggs are washed out of the body uh, before they get implanted. So technically, a pregnancy doesn't even become a possibility until that fertilized egg, that conceived egg, implants in the body. So what do you say about that, right? So what does mm -hmm. that say about God and nature if as many as 80% of, you know, uh, those eggs that are fertilized get washed out of the body? That's a really important question I don't see many many Catholics dealing yeah. with. There's just a total lack of sophistication in this issue in the Catholic Church now. And it's sad because the Catholic Church has a very, has a century, centuries-old tradition of using science and using our human reason in our moral decision-making and in our ethical questions. And they don't do it anymore. They just take it as an absolute taboo. They have totally stigmatized the issue so that there is no room for conversation. And that's really where the problem is. understanding of late-term abortion, you know, first of all, it's exceedingly rare, and most of the time when it does have to happen, it's because something utterly catastrophic happened mm -hmm. um, with the pregnancy. They never talk about that, you know? So they, yeah. I, I just want to see more nuance in the conversation. I'm not saying it's not morally complex, especially for Catholics who have grown up with this mm -hmm. constant, constant indoctrination. But it's just not that simple. Um, the church's history on the issue is not that simple. Um, you know, the, the reality of abortion is not that simple. And, so, you know, the, the natural process of the body isn't that simple. So that's how I begin to square it. It's just, it's just not that, it's not a black and white issue. It, it is morally very complex and we need to be in, have a real intelligent, rational conversation about it. That's what I found interesting when I heard from Father Thomas about double effect, mm -hmm. because it had not been something I heard before. Right. And and then I wonder, this isn't something that's being talked about openly, that nuance, but it is, in other words, an exception. Yeah. And I asked him about that, because what other word legally in the law would it be besides exception? Right. And that's where I think the church is wrestling because by stating that the church would be open to an exception, then it somehow is against 
the doctrine. When it comes to women's reproduction or women's ordination, there can be not even a little bit of an opening for these guys because they know that if they, even with LGBTQ Mm -hmm. issues, if there's a tiny opening, it all falls apart uh, for them because, Mm -hmm. because everything is based on this very narrow understanding of the natural law. All of these, all of these doctrines uh, whether it's abortion, whether it's same-sex relationships, whether it's women's ordination, they're all based on this very simplistic, very biologically based, reductive understanding of natural law. And they know that if they start to open up and start to think about natural law more broadly, everything, you know, everything goes with it. They have to rethink all of these issues. Right now, they are the kings of consistency. The radical way in which they have to remain maintain that consistency just becomes a taboo morality. And I think the Catholic tradition is better than that and more sophisticated than that. What I found so interesting, too, is this idea of Catholic heresy, the fear of the church uh, being expelled from the church. And I thought that's really challenging to then test your your belief. This is the consequence of testing your belief. We have in the Catholic Church, because we do value reason so highly, we have an understanding of the primacy of conscience. And according to that doctrine, and Pope Benedict XVI, who's seen as so reactionary and conservative, Mm -hmm. even he has said this, as that the individual conscience is the final arbiter in moral decision-making. Uh, that is that mm-hmm. is ultimately our resource, our ultimate resource when we have to make moral decisions. Because there mm-hmm. are so many circumstances in which abortion is the morally good and right choice. Mm-hmm. Where contraception is not to have access to contraception is is immoral and and harmful mm-hmm. um, and destructive uh, to to women, to families, to people's health. But what you were saying about heresy, you know, it strikes me that um, what the church very often threatens with is excommunication. Um, excommunication mm-hmm. if you have an abortion, excommunication if you uh, perform an abortion. And as we're seeing now with Biden, we have this return to this old song of excommunication if you, you know, are a pro-choice Catholic who goes to Matt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, you know, if you could distill the gospel into one sentence. It would be Jesus saying, feed one another. That's what communion is. It's feeding one another to become one with one another. When Jesus welcomed people to his table, there was no orthodoxy test. It was everyone come, no questions asked. And so whenever the bishops or priests try to deny people communion, which is what excommunication Mm -hmm. is, They are just contradicting the most fundamental truth of the gospel. And it's so striking to me that they they don't excommunicate for any other reason or don't deny communion for any other reason. There are a there's a host of (laughs) of teachings in Catholic sexual ethics that Every day, Catholics are violating, whether it's using contraception, whether it's mm-hmm. masturbation. You know, I mean, this is, this is a very extreme sexual ethic that the Catholic Church has. I don't know anyone that abides by it completely. Um, 
And so, you know, that they choose this particular issue. Again, it's very striking because it has everything to do with women's bodies. When I think about Jen and Anne's story, they made that decision. They believed that that decision was right for them. In Jen's point of view, she believes that you know abortion should be legal with uh, you know no exceptions. This is this is something that it's based on your decision as a woman. And then you have that spectrum of exceptions, um, and then no exceptions, not even for lethal anomaly, etc. But whatever position for Anne and Jen, it was traumatic. Yeah. So wrestling with the decision of having the abortion and then going through with it, even though they come out and said, this was the right decision for me and for my future family, in Jen's perspective, it was still traumatic. And I think there are so many people that believe that abortion is some sort of rapture, that it is so t- tremendously evil And that's why I wanted to share these stories, because when you're in them, it's so immensely intimate that it's hard to come out and and have that sense of evil. Yes, that's so well said. When you think about the trauma that you've seen in this space, what do you wish that faithful, non-faithful, just using our conscious, our what is the questions we should be asking ourselves? Well, what I'd love to see is a lot more abortion stories, and that's why I'm so glad you're doing that uh, in this piece. We are trying to do a lot more mm-hmm. abortion stories at Catholics for Choice, to put a face on this issue, to show the human toll. Any yeah. movement, I think, to destigmatize the issue is a good one. And again, you know, it's it's a place where I wish the Catholic Church could move beyond the taboo, beyond the stigma, and start to really engage it and look at these stories. That is how the LGBTQ issue has moved uh, along and had some progress in, in the Catholic Church, is because people started telling their stories. I think the reason LGBTQ issues have had slightly more success is because those issues affect men. Interesting. Yeah, I really believe that strongly. And um, men listen to men. And men demand a place. You know, they're not used to not having a place and not having access, you know, and, and rights. Mm-hmm. And so they, they have a way of demanding things. And it's men who are listening to men. This is the struggle with, with abortion, is that it really, though there are certainly non-binary people um, and trans people who can mm-hmm. get pregnant and do get pregnant, it is by and large an, an issue that affects women. And you know, when you have a church that will not allow women a voice and will not allow women decision-making power at any level, it's very difficult to get women's issues moved forward. That's why you can still be excommunicated for advocating for women's ordination in the Catholic Church. Excommunicated mm. for even speaking about it. These punishments are swift and severe. And so it's very hard to move uh, issues that affect primarily women forward in the church. But we have to tell our stories. But it's hard when you're in a church that doesn't give women a voice. So I think that's the work that we want to do. We have been doing and want to do even more strongly at Catholics for Choice. And not only tell the stories of women who have had abortions, we tell the stories of abortion care providers. 
mm-hmm. who say this is part of not only my professional oath and my moral obligation, this is part of my spirituality. Uh, this is part of me acting with justice and justice that's grounded in my faith. So I think all of these stories have to be told to destigmatize the issue. Because once you put a human face on it, it's very hard to look away. Next, Jamie shares that it's mostly men, including priests, that respond to her writings and media and the cruelty and threats in their messages. I would say 85% of the people who respond to me are men. Many of them are priests. So I'm struck by the overabundance of men and supposedly uh, celibate men who mm-hmm. get really radicalized about this issue. That, to me, calls a lot into question about controlling women's sexuality, about being mm-hmm. uncomfortable with women as sexual beings, about being very uncomfortable about women controlling their own fertility and having their own power and freedom. I put out a tweet recently because it was just a barrage of really cruel and rude and nasty comments of being called dumbass and this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, is this the world that supposed pro-life people want to live in where we talk to each other, you know, like from the gutter? It's like, how is this rhetoric pro-life? How is this building better community? How How is that the world you want these babies you claim to want to save to live in? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so consistent, Tay, that, you know, it's not, it, these are not anomalous situations. It's consistent yeah. nastiness, rudeness, tearing down, violent, you know, your days are numbered, uh, wow. you know, threatening, uh, menacing comments. So, so it's, you know, it, I see it more uh, in my social media, but I know it is lived out uh, in in really frightening ways in front of abortion clinics. Uh, And I think we need to pay very particular attention to the fact that a lot of the men who participated in the insurrection on January 6th are the same men who are very menacing and threatening at abortion clinics. And what does that say about where the real values are? Mm -hmm. Where are the real values if those are the same guys or rabidly pro-Trump, doing what they did to the Capitol, or the same guys just tearing down women at abortion clinics. I really think that it didn't get enough play, but it, it, it's really a moment of reckoning, I think, for pro-life Catholics who otherwise are progressive. Like, who are mm-hmm. you keeping company with? Question the motives of these most vocal and radicalized voices on this issue. This idea that without being engaged or connected or having sat down and listened to these stories, that one can be so clear about the choice. It feeds the headline that I hear often, that women are using abortion as birth control. Where does this come from and what's behind it? I think that's so important because this is an argument my mother, my mother's quite liberal, um, but mm-hmm. an argument we have all the time is, well, women shouldn't use it as birth control. And I've heard some mm-hmm. very progressive women say the same thing. They shouldn't use it as birth control. And all I hear every time is that women should not be sexual. You know, women should not have sexuality. You know, they, 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 if they want to play, they, they'll have to pay. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the real hardline Catholics who are anti-contraception say that too, you know, and they got mad yeah. during the ACA, you know, the contraceptive mandate. I had one of my colleagues at the time at National Catholic Reporter wrote it straight up. Um, my students are going to be able to play and not have to pay, you know, and I think the same uh. thing go, and it's just talking about women's students specifically. Um, and it just goes back to what I'm trying to say of this profound discomfort that Catholics have in a very special way. Uh, with women being sexual beings and wanting sexual pleasure and taking sexual pleasure. Uh, and why? Well, who is our, who is our icon in the Catholic Church? The Virgin. The Virgin who managed to get pregnant and not soil herself. It's, it's a very powerful yeah. image that runs very deep, I think, in the Catholic, in Catholic consciousness. Um, that somehow you should be able to get pregnant without having sex. Uh, and that's the ideal. And, <laughs> and no one, you know, anything else is, um, you're a fallen woman. You know, and I did a lot of study, uh, a few years ago into the Magdalene laundries. Um, I was doing a trip to Dublin and doing some writing, uh, when the Pope was visiting there. Uh, and I just got very, very, um, just sort of did a very deep dive on the, on the Magdalene laundries and the cruelty of them. For more than two centuries, women in Ireland were sent to institutions, also known as asylums, for punishment or veiled as rehabilitation. Unwed mothers, marked flirtatious women and girls, and prostitutes were forced into labor, doing laundry services under the nun order, for months or years, sometimes even for life. These institutions are known as the Magdalene Laundries and the last laundry closed in 1996 after the discovery of unmarked graves and the courage of survivors to speak up about their experiences. And what struck me is there was never a laundry for the boys that got those girls pregnant. You know, it was it was the women who had to be punished, who had to have their children ripped away from them. Uh, and what happened to the boys? There's just no accountability for men who act out sexually, but women who act out sexually uh, somehow have to be punished Mm -hmm. and have to be made to pay for the little bit of pleasure. I mean, you know, I don't have Mm -hmm. sex with men, but I remember the little (laughs) bit of pleasure (laughs) that that they got out of it. Um, But yeah, I think that whenever I hear that about, oh, they're using it as birth birth control, uh, that's what I hear is that they have no right to have that pleasure. Uh, they're going to have to pay for it. So, and the, the the insane double standard for women versus men. I hear Anne when she said to me, abortion is there because we need it. No one gets pregnant to have an abortion. Right. And I think that's just a level of compassion that we need to have yes. in this question. It, it just goes to that sexuality question of how women are judged. Right. think of pro-life women and it is true that some women that have had an abortion have turned to be pro-life because they came out of that experience and said i'm now pro-life so there is those stories too absolutely do you feel that there of course some may feel compelled because that's their deep spiritual belief but do you also have this sense that they're buying into the patriarchy that somehow women, we tend, whether it's in business or society, 
we can sometimes accept and be play into the patriarchy. Yes. It gives us some sort of payoff. It's it's really difficult. It's really challenging, especially for Catholic women who have only seen male bodies in power in, in spiritual space. Um, and the way in which you get so inculcated in that, that only men have authority. And when I was a young pastoral associate, you know, I went from being at Yale Divinity School where I was surrounded by 40 different kinds of Protestants, all of, all yeah. of the dom- denominations ordained women. And it was such a free space. And, you know, because we were just a small community of Catholics, we always found a liberal priest who let women preach. I hate even using that verb, but it says everything. When I got to the parish, it was like I went to a, a time warp because my very body made me invalid i remember very uh one of my one of my most painful memories being in the parish was um nobody was in the office priests were god knows where i was the only one in the office and we had a open door policy that anyone that knocked on the door of the church we let them in Uh, that was our very radical sacramental commitment to all people and to welcome and hospitality Mm -hmm. It was beautiful, and um, mm-hmm. I got a call from the, I got a call from the receptionist, and she said, "There's a man in the parlor. He wants to talk to someone." And I said, "Okay." So I, you know, leave my office. I go down the corridor. I look in the, into the parlor, and I see a man in there with his head in his hands. I open the door. I get one leg across the threshold, and he looks at me and he says, "I don't want to talk to you." And I, being very neurotic, that what did he hear about me? What kind of reputation do I have? It took me a minute to realize it was because I had a female body. And he wow. said, I want to make a confession. Oh. So my very form, my physical form, immediately communicated to him no authority, no validity, illegitimacy. And I have to tell you that the the great heartbreaker for me, even though I was at a parish that was so progressive, uh, progressive enough to hire a lesbian to be the pastor mm-hmm. associate, uh, it runs very deeply in women's consciousness as it does in men. Uh, and so I had plenty of women, you know, treat me uh, as, I, as if I were illegitimate too. Uh, and it's just, it's this deep inculcation that Catholics have to just not see women as as authoritative. And it's very hard to deprogram from that, even among progressive women. It, 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 it runs very deeply. Wow. Next time on this season finale of Anatomy of Change, we uncover what's been hiding in plain sight, race, and our history of white supremacy the influence of the bishops on politics, and what does it really mean to have a preferential option for the poor, Jamie's hopes for Pope Francis, and her long game for women to be seen as equal in the church. Anatomy of Change is executive produced by Tay Moeller with post-production, editing, and mixing by James Feligi. Special thanks to Jamie Manson for being our guest on the season finale episodes, 
into Anne Trumbull for testing and elevating this first season. The original series' music, titled Reborn, was composed by Adrian Berenguer. Additional music featured in this episode by Savan Talmor, Rosa, Midtro, Rue, Artie So, Michael F.K., Kyle Preston, and James Fleege. Our website, where you can listen to all episodes, featured music, and find companion content, is anatomyofchange.org. The end of the world at the palm of my hand When it all goes to hell, will you still be mine?